Pay attention to God's holy word. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you will rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, be with us now as we unpack your word, as we seek to see what you would have for us today in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. We pray, Father, that we would not be autonomous, that we would not be a law unto ourselves, but that we would come under your word and proclaim that indeed Jesus is Lord, and we want to know what our Lord would have us to believe and to do. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at 1, 6 through 9, uh, I want you to consider the heir to an inheritance, someone who's going to receive a kingdom, a property, some belongings from their elders. The heir longs for his future inheritance, but he's aware of the fact that history needs to unfold before the stuff becomes his. And so even though it's legally his presently, you could say, it's not his inheritance in full. Yet when the time comes when he fully possesses his inheritance, it will be an occasion of much rejoicing and joy because that which he had hoped for would have become a reality. Now, of course, I have in mind here is maybe someone receiving a business when they're in their 20s. Obviously, if we're talking about someone passing away and giving the inheritance, It'll be joyful in the sense you get stuff, but obviously there's some suffering and sorrow and shame on you if you rejoice in that context. But we're looking at a situation where you get the inheritance at the appointed time. Peter is speaking about that kind of joy and rejoicing that'll occur when the Christian receives their inheritance on the last day. It's a full and a complete joy it's the Christian's greatest cause for rejoicing. And unlike any rejoicing that any earthly heir could dare to express, it will be a rejoicing that is, as he says in verse 8, a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Because basking in the glory of God himself is the cause for rejoicing on that day. 
Now this focus on the future joy of the last day, it's not immediately evident in your translations. Your NIV or your ESV, it'll probably read something like this in verse 6. And I'm in the wrong place in my Bible. First Peter 1.6. My ESV here has, uh, in this you rejoice, right? And some of you might have caught that as I was reading before the sermon. In this you will rejoice was how I read it. Now, there's two points of grammar that we need to be aware of, one of which is a rather fine point of grammar. First, the first words of verse 6, in this, they most naturally refer to verse 5, right? And verse 5, of course, the end of verse 5 says this, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This salvation ready to be revealed in the last time is what six is ta- verse 6 is talking about. In this most naturally refers to this last time, right? This final and full salvation. Secondly, this present statement in the passage, in this you rejoice, it's better understood as a future statement. In this you will rejoice. In the original language, it is sometimes appropriate for a present verb to have a future meaning. This grammatical possibility, of course, fits quite well with the last time mentioned in verse 5. So as we read verse 6, I read it as, in this, namely the last day, you will rejoice. Or to be more explicit, in the last time you will rejoice. Similarly in 1.8b, in both of these cases we should understand the rejoicing in a futuristic sense, referring to future joy, the joy that will be experienced at the revelation of Christ's glory. So 6a teaches us that we will rejoice in the last time when our salvation is revealed. And 8b is better translated as uh, you will rejoice with unspeakable and joy glorified. Unspeakable joy. Will rejoice with joy unspeakable and glorified, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So the rejoicing that Peter is promising us is the rejoicing of the final state of heaven itself. Note the language that's used in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. In 6a, if we're right, you will rejoice in the last time. Verse 7, when Jesus Christ is revealed. When will Jesus Christ be revealed? The last day. 8b, you will rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now think about it. When will you be filled with inexpressible, glorious joy, glorified joy? Not until Jesus is revealed. Now some of you are skeptical and you're asking, Hold on a second. Haven't I been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment? Am I not a child of the King? Am I not full of joy? And yes is the answer. However, although that is true, that the Christian is truly joyful now, that's not, I think, what's going on in the text today. That inexpressible, glorified joy remains until Jesus is revealed. Now it's true, we do have true joy now. The Christian is the one who has joy and who's able to rejoice in the present despite sufferings because of a host of reasons, right? Our justification, God declares us righteous, right? God provides uh, 
sin-bearing sacrifice to take our sins, our sanctification. God is working on you in ways where you're dying unto sin and living unto righteousness more, casting yourself on Christ more. That is a cause for joy. God cares about me. God's working about me. I can experientially see that. We see God's providence. That's a cause for joy. We look at how God has answered our prayers again and again, how God's good creation is good to us. The doctrine of assurance is another cause for joy here. And of course, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We could go on. But a significant theme in 1 Peter is that the present joy that believers presently have is because they live by hope in the age to come. The Christian's life, as it were, is anchored in heaven itself, and they already spiritually partake of heavenly realities. As a result, the Christian is peculiarly prepared to suffer in this world because for the believer, we know that our true life is hidden with Christ in God in the world to come. Our true life is in the next world, and even now you are a participant in that place. That's a very important point of Peter's in this letter. Look for me with it a second, for a second at uh, 1 Peter 4.13. I realize for those of you that were here for Sunday school, some of this is going to sound a little bit repetitive. It wasn't planned. Just short of catechism number one in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. Share some themes. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, 13. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. However, I want you to see today when we look at 1, 6 through 9, that the rejoicing and the joy that Peter speaks of here in 6a and 8b is the future rejoicing of the last day. We will have unspeakable, glorified joy only in heaven. Think about that, glorified joy. We've all experienced joy in some way, making an accomplishment, seeing a child born, right? doing something amazing or seeing something like the Grand Canyon. These are joyous occasions. But we're talking here about unspeakable, glorified joy. Think of that. When we speak theologically of glorification, we're talking about redeemed man's existence in the new heavens and the new earth with our resurrected bodies of glory that have been re-imaged in the image of Christ. We will only have glorified joy that we can't even speak of and mention we can't even express that glorified joy even as we're glorified. That's a brain blower. We'll have that glorified joy when we're glorified. Now, you are receiving the goal or end of your faith, this is verse nine, the salvation of your souls. When Peter speaks of salvation of our souls here, he doesn't have the Greek idea where there's a bifurcation between the body and the soul. And you know, for the Greeks, they would talk about things like, uh, to, to die is good because then the soul is freed from the body or the spirit is freed from the body and, and that's a good thing. No, for the Christian and for the Jew, we realize that soul is all that man is, body and soul, okay? It's one thing. And so when Peter has that here, he's not talking about the Greek idea of an immortal soul. Rather, he's referring to the salvation of the whole human person. Peter uses this same word in 3.20 where he says this, and he's speaking, of course, about the ark. In it, a few souls, eight in all, were saved through water. So when Peter uses that language of souls in 1 Peter 3, it's the same language that he uses in 
perhaps your ESV or your NIV, instead of having souls, it says person. I think this is how it reads. The ESV translates this as people, right? So souls, people. Again, when will the Christian receive the goal or the end of their faith? When will the Christian's whole person, body and soul, be saved? It's only when this perishable body of ours is clothed with the imperishable body, when this mortality puts on immortality. It's only at the last day when Christ is revealed and we are glorified. So if we put Peter's statements, I put the statements of Peter's main thought in the language of our church's catechism, he is saying that redeemed man will soon lay hold of his chief end, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glorifying God and enjoying him forever is only ultimately possible when we're glorified. Notice that sometime as you study Westminster Shorter Catechism number one and number 38. Number one, of course, is what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 38 asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Answer. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. So number 38, which speaks of glorification, shows you that the only means whereby number one can perfectly and finally come to pass, it's through Jesus, of course. We glorify and enjoy God because of Jesus. Ultimately, the enjoyment and glorification of God spoken of in number one is only fully realized in glorification. And no one is glorified apart from the Lord of glory, King Jesus. So let us remind ourselves of verse five. The future joy of the last time is ready to be revealed. This inexpressible joy may come upon you at any moment. Your greatest longing can be realized at any time now whether that's from a heart attack, whether that's from getting hit by a bus, whether it's from the second coming of our blessed Savior now, that moment can come at any time. There is no historical prerequisite for that to happen. The joy of that day will be eternal and inexpressible beyond our ability to grasp or tell. It's then that we shall worship God as we ought in purity and holiness. Now, in the midst of Peter writing on this inexpressible, eternal future joy mentioned in verses 6a and 8b, Peter interjects a comparison between it and the Christian's present temporal sufferings. Peter says this in verse 6, In this you will greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Suffering and grief or our portion in this age until our Savior appears. When Peter says, you may have had to suffer, or more literally, if you must suffer, he's not saying, well, maybe you're going to have to suffer and maybe you won't. It's a conditional sentence where suffering for the Christian is assumed for the sake of his argument. It's normative. Later, Peter goes on in 4.12 and 4.13 of this same letter to say this about the Christian experience. And mind you, this is normative Christian experience. Peter says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering 
as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. This isn't a popular teaching in an age where false churches teach that Christians are happy-go-lucky people who have no problems, are healthy and wealthy, and usually have straight teeth based on what I see on TV. No, beloved, know this for certain. We must suffer all kinds of trials. King Jesus, the perfect man, God of God, light of light, he who had no sin, didn't turn out so well for him in terms of avoiding suffering, did it? It didn't. Beloved, a student is not greater than their master. If your Lord Jesus suffered, you too must suffer if you are his disciple. Now, Paul said to Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, it's important for us as we talk about participating in the life of Christ and suffering with and for him, and then we talk about his suffering. These are not to be equated, ultimately. It's important to note that Jesus Christ's suffering was redemptive. Christ suffered for sinners. From his humiliating birth in an animal's feed trough all the way to the final moments on the cross where he's stripped naked and castigated as a criminal, as a cultural and governmental revolutionary perhaps, uh, he's humiliated. He's humiliated when he bears the full wrath of the Father on the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, Jesus' suffering is redemptive for his people. Jesus suffers as the sin-bearing second Adam, and he's entered into our existence and pulled off the rescue mission that we can't. He's provided a perfect righteousness for us through his own life, and he's taken the penalty for our sin through his death. Jesus' sufferings are such that it's by his wounds that we're healed, and because the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Our sufferings, on the other hand, are not redemptive in the least. Rather, they are a participation in the life of Christ. It's our joy to be like our Lord. We've been united to him by faith. Scripture uses the imagery of union or in Christ. It's all over in Paul, right? Or in Christ. Whatever he experienced, we too experience. By faith, you're united to Christ in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. Friend, if you don't know this Savior as your sin-bearing, life-giving substitute, I implore you, be reconciled to God. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Flee to him. However, if Christ is yours and you are his, you are united to him in his sufferings. It is a blessing to suffer for Christ. Remember the apostles when they left the Sanhedrin being told to swear not to speak anymore in this name? Rather, they leave rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
And beloved, that whole concept of labor post-fall includes a lot of suffering. Sweat of your brow, bearing children. Our labor after the fall includes a lot of suffering. So our labor is not in vain as we work in the Lord, and our suffering is certainly not in vain either. Now, Peter's reason for saying, if you must suffer, is not in any way to deny the universal necessity of suffering for all Christians, but rather it's there to merely to show how insignificant our present sufferings are in comparison with the glory that awaits us. And of course, this is, you know, consonant with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Paul says, for the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, we ought not think, oh, Paul didn't know that his head was going to be separated from his body. We ought not think, oh, Paul didn't know that Peter was going to be crucified upside down. No, these guys counted the cost. They counted the cost. And they said, for momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, whatever that looks like in your personal suffering. So here's the question, and this sounds always like a downer. Uh, what do trials or testing achieve for us? According to the text, they're a means of purifying our faith. Our faith is compared to gold. Once thought to be the most valuable substance on earth. Interesting side note, uh, an elderly saint once shared with me, he says, it's interesting to know that uh, gold is put in its proper place in heaven. It's the streets. It's the asphalt. It's the cheapest thing. But in our minds, it is considered throughout human history one of the most important things. It's valuable. Now, although gold is valuable, it is in the final analysis perishable. Peter knows that this gold, along with the rest of creation, will perish. Second Corinthians, Second uh, Peter three ten through twelve says, "But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar." And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in uh, lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? So your faith, which on one hand is of more value than gold, but it's also a faith that is imperishable. Gold, in the final analysis, will perish. Your faith will not. Just as the impurities of gold are brought out by heating it in a melting pot at great temperatures and scooped off and cast aside because they're garbage to go ahead and reveal the purity and the glory of that gold, so too the impurities of our faith are brought out. The impurities of our faith are brought out by suffering through trials that test and prove the genuineness of our faith. Now often our faith does not appear for what it really is. In its purity, faith is a certain conviction brought about by the Holy Spirit as to the truth of the gospel and a wholehearted reliance on the promises of God in Christ. Our faith is a certain conviction brought about by the Holy Spirit as to the truth of the gospel and a wholehearted reliance on the promises of God in Christ. 
Faith makes us love God for his sake and his sake alone, not because of what God can do for us. But of course, we know that mixed in with this faith of ours is a bunch of junk. There are foreign things that go ahead and pollute our faith. Mixed in with your faith, perhaps, is faith as conceived of in the world, which is merely self-confidence. Mixed in with your faith is your self-confidence. Mixed in with your faith is your hope in this world and the things of it. These things pollute the gold of our faith, and they make it look dull. Someone who said that the only thing that we add to our salvation is our sin. Certainly this imagery in Peter affirms that, or rather this person catches on to what Peter's doing. God gives us faith as a gift, and our impurities are all our own addition. So trials come along, and they burn away our own self-confidence and worldly hope, and they make us flee to God in faith. If that's the purpose of trials and suffering, if it makes us flee to our Savior and cast ourselves upon him wholly, saying, whom have I in heaven but thee? If that's the goal of faith, well, don't fear trials. Rejoice in them. Trials and suffering bring you closer to God because they make you confess that God alone is your joy and pleasure and you can find pleasure in nothing else, nothing apart from him. God, however, will take nothing that you need away in trials. His goal is to have you more and more wholeheartedly rely on him for all things. And if your faith is proved genuine, God will commend you for it. It will result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. The result of faith, of course, is glorification. Think of that. The very faith that God gives you, that God gifts you to draw you into his kingdom, it's brought to suffer grief that we might be purged of all the junk that we add to our faith. And then God praises us, honors us, and glorifies us so that in return we might eternally live to his praise, honor, and glory. So we've covered that we must suffer, but good question is how? How do we suffer? How do we suffer in trials? Now in his letter, Peter does not get terribly specific as to what kind of trials the Christians in Asia Minor who are scattered yet blessed are suffering. Peter's commenting on all suffering and all trials that Christians experience. He does make this clear, however, that we must suffer as Christians. 4.14 through 16, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Notice what Peter's doing. He's not saying all human suffering is suffering for Christ. No, no, no. He's saying you must suffer for Christ as a Christian. Not all suffering is for Christ's sake. You're indeed blessed if you suffer with and for Christ, but don't conflate being a jerk and being a Christian with I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you might be suffering for being a jerk. Watch out for that one. You see it in the culture. It's a thing, right? Not every... Watch out for that one. Don't conflate being a jerk and bearing the consequences for your bad behavior as suffering for being a Christian. Now, it's true, everybody in the world does suffer sooner or later. No one gets out alive. As Pastor commonly says, he's never seen a, uh, a, a U-Haul following a hearse, right? 
Um, we all die, and we don't get to take all of our labors with us. We get sick, loved ones die, people lose jobs, natural disasters ravage lands, displace and kill people. We plot along the best as we can through pandemics and stake our claims somewhere along the poles of freedom or safety and demonize each other. Suffering is a universal problem for the Christian and the non-Christian alike. But for the Christian, we have an answer for our suffering. We have a God who spared not his own son, who sent him into suffering that we might suffer for Christ and become more dependent on God in all things through our suffering. And therefore, because the Christian is a dependent creature and recognizes it and confesses it and glories in it, enjoys in it, the Christian does not boast in the lyrics of Kelly Clarkson, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger, she says. Rather, the Christian boasts in, in my weakness, he is strong. Suffering in the Christian life isn't like a trip to the gym whereby you tear your muscles and get stronger, but rather it's motivation making us flee to God who alone glorifies his saints. We learn to love God for his sake and his sake alone through our trials and suffering. And we know that after, the text says, after a little suffering, we will enter into glory just as Christ did. A little suffering. Yet I want you to notice in verse 8 that the central reason for our suffering is found in the fact that we live by faith and not by sight. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Verse 7 speaks of us receiving praise and honor and glory from God when Jesus is revealed, right? Revealed is important here. It emphasizes the fact that it's not so much that Jesus is gone and he'll come again, right? He's, he's not a deist. He's not gone on vacation. No, no, no. Rather, Jesus is present yet hidden. Our salvation has no concrete aspect to it now. We, along with creation, of course, groan for the revelation of Christ. So Peter here is not saying, in verse 7, he, he's not saying that I have seen the Lord, 7 or 8, um, I have not, he's not saying I've seen the Lord and you haven't. He's not saying, oh, I'm so proud of you for believing even though you didn't have the benefit of seeing him. No, Peter is talking about the revelation of Christ on the last day. Peter is saying that even he has not seen Jesus in the way that he will appear at his revelation. Think about that. The revelation of Christ that his saints will witness and participate in is a revelation that exceeds all that Peter witnessed. And Peter witnessed a lot. Consider the transfiguration. There's Moses, Elijah, right? Jesus, they're meeting. And Moses and Elijah disappear and fade away. And the father says, this is my son, hear him, right? Peter saw that and responded badly, just as we would have. Lord, maybe I'll make some booths. Peter saw the resurrected Christ. Peter saw Christ ascend into heaven. Peter is saying that the way in which we shall experience Christ at his revelation when he's revealed shall be even greater than that. Beloved in Christ, God will make you happier than you could possibly think. He's already made you happy as you spiritually participate in heavenly realities now. But as you suffer, and you must suffer, let's remember the words of Hebrews 12 too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus 
the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of your own. You must suffer before you enter into glory. Now, the good news for you, of course, is Christ's suffering is redemptive. Your suffering as you are following in his footsteps, he has done the heavy lifting. He has done it all. He has done it all. Christ's pattern is yours. Suffering now, glory later. And as you do suffer, remember this. It's okay. Think about this. As you suffer for your faith, maybe you lose classmates as friends because you won't participate in the latest TikTok challenge because theft and humiliation are immoral. And they make fun of you. Why don't you join in this? Everybody younger than, older than 20 just lost me there. Um, it's okay. It is okay. You are suffering because you have a standard of behavior given by the King of Kings that you know you need to follow, however imperfectly. You suffer for that, and that's okay. Perhaps you lost a job because you've told your employer, I will not work on the Lord's Day. That is the day where I participate in heavenly realities, where I'm reminded that I have a Savior who's gone before me, who's earned all of my salvation, and therefore I go throughout the week serving as a good employee, worshiping my God in all that I do. But that day, I'm not going to work. If that's your conviction and you get fired for that, well, then you're suffering for Christ. Perhaps you're not married yet because of your principles. You're like, I'm not going to be unequally yoked. I'm looking for someone who loves the Lord Jesus and he or she needs to be with me as we pursue him, right? And if you're not married because of that and you feel like you're suffering, well, you're suffering for Christ. Let's leave the hypothetical, although very real for many of us. St. Polycarp, in 155, he was threatened with being burned at the stake if he didn't confess that Caesar is Lord and burn some incense. Come on, guys, it's just a word, Caesar little bit of incense, just light that sucker and you'll be alive, it's good. I'm sure the temptation might have been strong. Polycarp says, 80 and six years have I served him and he has done me a world of good, never done me any bad. He's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while, I didn't notice that until last night, that's same language used in First Peter. And after a little while, this fire is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Polycarp got it. Now, of course, those are specifically focused on suffering for our faith with one very real example. But of course, we know that we suffer for the curse in general, right? Losing loved ones, child, spouses, parents, right? Maybe you don't have the position in life that you figured ought to be yours at this point while others sail ahead. Maybe you suffer because of your own poor decisions. That's a real one. Whatever our cause of suffering is, it's okay. Your suffering has meaning. As you suffer as a Christian, as one united to Christ, you participate in your Savior's life. Your faith gets purified, and now you grow closer to your creating and redeeming God who will take you with him soon. And in the meantime, 
as you suffer as a Christian, keep in mind that you are a billboard for the glory of God. You are a showcase of God's grace to a watching world. So it's okay because you have a God that promises it's okay and it has meaning as you are his. Believe this, beloved. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks uh, for your word. We thank you even for hard words. Uh, if we were going to create a religion, it would probably be something we'd see on TV. It would promise amazing things. And it would promise that if you send in a certain amount of money, things will be wonderful, all the while enriching ourselves. How we give thanks for King Jesus, who did not enrich himself, but rather stooped down from glory, took upon human nature, accepting sin, and has pulled off a redemptive plan that we rejoice in, and we look forward to unspeakable glory in your presence. So, Father, as faithful soldiers for Jesus, help us to bear under the load that we bear, to pick up our cross, whatever sufferings we endure, that we would consider, how do we do that as a Christian? And know that it will be a little while. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.